What's up, everyone? Thanks for tuning in. Asian Bitches Down Under, a podcast about sharing information and perspectives from the Asian diasporas in society and culture. We encourage you to subscribe to our show via Apple, Google, or Spotify. If you have enjoyed our episodes, please support us by giving us a five star rating and get your friends on board to listen to us. Finally, we would love you to support this podcast by donating to our Buy Me a Coffee program. Your wonderful support and donations will help us to continue creating the platform for diversity and inclusivity. Make sure you check out the episode show notes for any collaborations we're working with to promote. Thanks again, and we hope you will enjoy today's episode. Hi everyone, this is Helen. Thanks for tuning in Asian Bitches Down Under. In this episode, we have an interview with Asami Koike, the founder of Just Shapes and Sounds, about the importance of exploring mental health and mental wellness for Asian diasporas in Australia. We have gained some insights into Asami's work of music therapy and the essence of music for our emotions. Before we start, perhaps ask yourself what sort of music do you listen to when you're feeling down, and what sort of music will trigger specific emotions for you? For Jesse, it has always been the jazz music, and as for me, I guess I'm drawn to poignant music such as Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto. Anyway, we hope you're enjoying our conversation with Asami. Okay, um, so first of all, thank you for coming to our podcast, Asami. And what we would like to to start with um, letting us know about your background, experience and qualifications. Yeah, just do a little intro about yourself. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you both for having me. Thanks for this hour too. Um, Okay, so where to begin, hey? I'll, I'll start from the start, but I promise you it won't get too long. But essentially, I was born in Japan um, and I moved to Australia when I was four years old with my parents. And like back around that time, like the 80s and the 90s, that was sort of the boom or the boom was ending in Japan, the economic boom. And you know how there's so much knowledge about um, the salary man and the really intense work-life balance in Japan, or there is no work-life balance in Japan. Um, and that really rigid sort of Japanese culture. Well, my parents were really interested in leaving that behind um, and moving away from Japan and coming to Australia for to live like a very relaxed, relaxed, so-called free and easy Aussie lifestyle. Like that's what they were all about, right? Um, And so what that looked like for me as a kid was that um, I was raised Um, or I went to a very, very white school. I lived in a very white neighborhood. I, all of my friends were white Um, and I didn't learn Japanese. I didn't actually speak Japanese all that much at home. Um, And I think like that was really wonderful. Like it afforded me so many opportunities. So my parents were really interested in freedom. So they encouraged me to pursue my passions and my dreams and um, and follow follow my interests essentially. So mm. that led me to a lot of well-being and mental health interests. So um, music and yoga, which I'll talk about later. 
But I think also what was interesting on the flip side of that, as a, a child with a developing brain, one message that I really internalized was that the whiter you are, the more that you assimilate, um, the better your life becomes, essentially. The more you fit in, the more you'll be accepted, the more opportunities you'll gain. And that being Japanese was kind of like, oh, it's a shame, you know? What a shame that I'm Japanese. I just have to hide that and be as white as possible. That's kind of this, this message that I don't think my parents taught me, but I think a really undeveloped brain. I think that's what I internalized and that's what I really struggled with for a very long time. I think that essentially kind of got me thinking about things like um, mental health and well-being. When I was 18, I became quite ill. I think I had a lot of issues with identity and working out where I belonged, who I am, all those kinds of questions. And that led me to dropping out of uni at first year uni and instead packing up all of my belongings and having a pure eat, pray, love moment. And I went to India and I lived in an ashram in South India and I, I was very lucky to study classical yoga. Um, for six months and I became a yoga teacher and that was my way of being like this is how you become healthy and this is how you become well in the world um, and so following that I lived in Japan after India I went to Japan um, and I taught yoga there and that again was a bit of a journey trying to um, fit in to Japan I thought that because I'm Japanese I just turn up in Japan and everyone accepts me as who I am but actually, like we think racism is bad in Australia, but racism in Japan is like next level racism, you know. <laughs> um, and I have a purely Japanese name. Apparently my face is a bit different. People can tell, but they can smell. They're like, oh, you're foreign. They can hear a hint of an accent. They're like, oh, what's, what's going on there? So that was really confronting. Again, it's like, oh, wow, I feel like I don't belong in Australia. I feel like I don't belong in Japan like what what am I where am I what you know all those kinds of questions so that was like very early 20s so I came back to Melbourne kind of a bit resigned to the fact that I don't fit in anywhere and I was still teaching yoga but I'd always pursued music as a kid so I was like oh maybe maybe music's the place maybe music's the thing for me that will help me to feel like myself and like I belong somewhere so I studied a bachelor's of music, um, but then I started to hear about people playing music in hospitals and that it wasn't just a volunteer role, but there was a role called music therapy. And I was like, that sounds like me, like music, well-being. Um, so I did a master's of music therapy and I ended up, so music therapists work across a whole range of different uh, age brackets and populations. But I ended up working in acute youth crisis support. Um, and that's where the majority of my music therapy career has spanned, like working really at the very, very pointy end of mental health. Um, yeah, and there's a bit more of the story, which I, I'm sure we'll get into, which led mm -hmm. me to Shapes and Sounds too. But it's all been a bit of a culmination about mental health, well-being and cultural identity, I'd say. Mm -hmm. yeah I think yeah do you want to say something Jess no like what an incredible you know circular um round I guess like traveling from India and then to Japan and then coming back to Australia 
And I guess like I'm, I'm guessing a lot of your yoga um, experience is used in, like you use it in your music therapy. You incorporate yeah. elements of it. And like most definitely, like just the foundational idea of how important your body is in your mm. well-being, I think that and how important it is to regulate your nervous system and to feel grounded and calm and to use your breath. It's in therapy as well or like even in business, even working with people, it's about um, kind of finding that physical sense of grounding first and then all the ideas can flow and then connection can happen. So it's definitely, as you say, a core part of everything that I do. Mm, that's great. Um, speaking of music therapy, um, could you tell us a little bit de in detail about what does it involve? Um, I guess it's not just simply sitting there and listen to music. Yeah. No. So music therapy is, we're an allied health profession. So we sit alongside like social work, psychology, physio physiotherapy, et cetera. And we work across a whole range of um, populations. So you'll find music therapists um, at the children's hospital, at the neonatal units, so right at the beginning of birth and span all across till aged care and palliative care. So there's so many different places where music therapy fits in. Most people work in hospitals in things like cancer care, um, a huge team at the Children's Hospital and oncology care. Um, there are a few people who work in men mental health. I've always focused um, and my work has always been situated in mental health and youth mental health as well, which um, I think makes sense because music is so important when you're young as well. Like it's important when you're old, but you know when you're young and it's like a big part of your identity. Mm. Um, and music therapy is exactly what it sounds like, really. It's like you're using music in therapy. For me, in this kind of mental health context and especially in trauma work, um, what's really interesting about trauma or experiences of trauma is that it actually shuts down the language centres in your brain, which means that when you have a traumatic experience, it's actually really hard to put into words what you've experienced. Um, and a lot of people talk about feeling silenced or just not having the words to explain what's going on for them. And that's like, that's literally what's happening. Your brain has switched off. Um, and the way that you make or you help your brain come back online is through sensory experiences like music. So listening to music actually calms and regulates your nervous system. So then you're prepared to talk more. So when we encourage people who have had real intense experiences of trauma to go to therapy, like just go to therapy, go to therapy, go to therapy and talk about your problems, you're actually asking people to do something that their brain is, is, is actually not primed to do. Mm -hmm. So in my work, maybe like a more tangible example of that is like, do you have any songs or maybe you did when you were a teen of like, songs that spoke exactly your story you're like was this song written for me do you know what I mean like the song completely encapsulates um, an experience that you're having but what I found in music therapy is that a lot of young people will be like I can't talk about the trauma that I've experienced but here's a song that says literally exactly my story and then we'll listen to that song together mm -hmm. and then 
that offers me the opportunity to slowly piece apart what this person has been going through. You know, there might be like really big themes like suicide, rape, violence. Um, and then the song offers an opportunity for a young person to very, very gently start to open up and express what they're talking about. And so many people find that valuable, not only in like the real acute pointy end of mental health work, but even just day to day. Sometimes we look to a song um, and it, it helps us to acknowledge and validate our feelings. And it becomes like this this other person or this kind of therapeutic medium, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm curious to know, Asami, did you go into music therapy like knowing for sure you wanted to work with young people or did you kind of fall into that? Um, hmm, I wonder. Hey, I'm just trying to think back. I knew I wanted, definitely wanted to work in mental health. Mm-hmm. And no, I wasn't specifically into working with young people, but but I always knew that music is very, very powerful and very important when you're a teen as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess yeah. everyone has their like favorite type of music. It's it's a period of time that you develop and kind of, you know, whether or not you have a, a type of music that you like during your teenage years, or you follow, mm. you know, the pop culture or your friends you know, what, what kind of music that you like. Yeah, it certainly is. It's very important, I think. And I also think that I totally agree with the music therapy method because coming, uh, speaking of my own experience, I guess uh, as a woman in an Asian body in the Western country, it is very hard to speak, use your language to convey your feelings. And mm. sometimes um, I, I don't know about others out there, but with our own cultures, when we were growing up, it is really hard to speak out minds because we were taught to, as a child, you listen, you don't talk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally, so right? It was very difficult to mm. kind of establish that kind of language to convey your feelings. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, you go, Jess. Um, Sami, are there any music playing? Like, as in, do you use instruments in your sessions? Yeah, music playing, um, like music improvisation and music playing are really big parts as well. So, again, it's some people are much more kind of talk-based and and we do like the song listening and song sharing and making playlists um, for mood regulation and, and that kind of side. But then again... There's always the improvisation. Again, if people can't talk, like verbally express how they're feeling, even if you're not a trained musician, improvisation with another human being is really powerful. And I'm sure you know as a musician too, Jess, like um, some other language comes out when you're playing music and it's very symbolic and it's very meaningful. And as a music therapy, you're listening to what kind of tones are coming out when people play or like two people might be on a piano and you're listening to how they interact with you. Often if people have really intense experiences of trauma, like they cannot play in relationship with you. Like, you know, when you play music with someone and you sense there's a relationship and you're in time and you're in sync together. But often um, when you have had experiences of trauma, playing in time is really, really difficult and really scary with another human being because that signals that you're, nervous system is in sync with another person and that's really intimate and it's really really scary if you've had a lot of relational trauma um 
and at the same time like kind of music like learning guitar or learning piano that can offer people a point of focus and a way to stay motivated to keep going there's like um it's it's a very future focused activity to learn how to play an instrument actually it's quite a hopeful experience Mm. Oh, beautifully said, yeah. So speaking of what you do, apart from mm. uh, being the music therapist, um, you establish Shape and Sounds. So would yep. you like to talk a little bit about um, what does uh, Shape and Sounds do and what do they provide? Yeah, sure. So Shapes and Sounds was formed in October 2019, um, just before COVID, which is crazy to think about. Mm. And how it actually came about was that so I was working in this acute setting, crisis service, providing therapeutic services and creating um, programs that are really trauma-informed for young people. But what I noticed as I was working there was that um, young people of colour were slipping through the cracks in our mental health service delivery, like in our organisation, and then you might refer them on to somewhere else, like Origin, Headspace, et cetera. And then again, they kind of like just disappear. And especially like Asian Australians as well, right? Mm -hmm. There's something very invisible about that Asian Australian experience where um, people don't understand the nuances of our culture, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, every time what was really fascinating was if I would bring this up, like, oh, that's mm -hmm. a bit weird. Like I feel like I'm noticing, you know, like the Asians falling through the cracks then the response that would often be given was, okay, let's get more interpreters, let's get more documents translated into different languages. Mm. And then I was like, oh, I feel really confused because I feel like these kids are speaking English, like, like mm. us. Like, yes, it's important to interpret, have interpreters and translated documents, but I was like, I'm, I'm sure this person is speaking English and English is their first language. They were born in Australia. They were raised in Australia. So it's not really a language barrier here that we're facing. It's a cultural, like the nuances of our culture are being missed. And for example, there was one young person who would always say things like, I don't want to be a burden on the service. I don't want to take away support from other people. Um, oh, don't worry. My problem is not so bad. It's not bad like everyone else. Mm -hmm. um, but this kid was like sleeping um, in a laneway for three months in the middle of winter. Um, and I was like, can you, can you not hear the nuances in that? Like, mm -hmm. it, it's a very Asian thing to say, like, I don't want to be a burden on the service. I was like, that's not your problem. You need help. And our role is to help you. Um, but then the service would sometimes be like, oh, okay, if it's not so bad, we'll help someone else today. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how kids were falling through the cracks. So witnessing all of that, I experienced a lot of burnout, which yeah. is really common in the mental health sector. Um, and I was very lucky enough to take time off work for about six months or so. And in that time, I was blogging. I was just writing like all my anger into the universe, into the internet. And luckily, like thanks to the internet and social media, it seemed to strike a chord with a lot of people. Um, and this conversation about being Asian Australian and how that impacts our mental health started to form. Um, and um, during that time, I met Vianne, who's a psychologist, and together we've been shaping this business that we call Shapes and Sounds. And essentially, we're an online platform 
that promotes Asian Australian mental health. We make it easy for people to care for their mental health first by providing um, an engaging conversation, something that's accessible, something that doesn't feel like too scary or too icky. Mm. Uh, we just want people to be like, okay, let's talk about mental health, similar like you both do in your podcast and some of your episodes. Um, and then we provide resources, like we've got the Asian Australian Mental Health Practitioner List. That seems to be really, really popular. People wanting to find someone perhaps with some kind of similar cultural background to them. And then, of course, we have our paid programs and our membership model, which is relaunching in April. And that's really about bringing people together, um, a lot of self-learning, a lot of self-reflection that's guided by us and our team of therapists and psychologists and kind of um, a community platform where people can connect with one another. A lot of people that we know, um, similar to my kind of upbringing, they never had Asian people around them. So as adults now, we're kind of reclaiming that and building friendships and connections um, with our community, which is really wonderful. Mm. Well, that's great. Yeah, it, it is very hard sometimes for, um, I guess, immigrants it's just so speaking of immigrants everyone have very very different experience even with myself and jess we're siblings she has a she had a very different <laughs> childhood experience compared to me because i grew yeah. up with majority of asian friends whereas jess i think she was a bit yeah, more diverse more like you Sami. yeah and yeah, also right. yeah and also asami i'm like you i was four when i came here whereas helen was 12. yeah, yeah. i was just turned 11 yeah so it's it's very different. Everyone goes through a very different experience, but the culture nuance, like you said, it's, it exists there regardless yeah. of, you know, the age that you come here. And because of a lot of like generational, um, I don't want to say traumas or issues, but just a lot of traditions that pass down through families within immigrants. Um, mm. It's hard, even if you're born in Australia, you know, as an Asian person, you will still experience very similar type of like um, culture um, nuances, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating, isn't it? Like the age of immigration plays such a big role and then that intersects with your personality. And then it's like your family, like where you sit in the yeah. family. Do you have siblings in between as well? Yeah, we have two. Oh. We have two. I'm the oldest and Jess is the youngest in the family. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I love yeah. what you said earlier this um, episode, Asami, about when you were younger, you kind of thought, well, if the wider I am, the better my life is kind of thing. And I'm always, like, I feel very conflicted because I don't know how to retain my sort of Asian-ness, which I want to be proud of. But also, like, I, I can't deny the fact that when I do a lot of things that, like when I express myself and do a lot of things that, you know, like whiteness teaches me, you know, to be open and to not be kind of contained by my gender, um, I, I do feel better, you know? Like how do you deal with that conflict in your head? Yeah, I hear you. It's like every time I go back to Japan and I feel like so like rough and like <laughs> compared to all the, the very like petite, like, you know, wonderful Japanese women that will cook and clean and like do their hair perfect every single day I'm like wow I feel so weird here and you're so right like here we have this wonderful opportunity as kind of like diaspora people where we get 
we actually get to choose the best of both worlds, I think. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I'm really grappling with too, Jesse, like this idea of like, is that okay? Is it okay if Mm. if I can take everything that I like about Australian or so-called Australian culture and then all the bits that I like about Japanese culture or do I need to be really kind of like balanced in what I bring into my life? Do I need to also take in like the hard parts of Japanese culture? Um, but I'm, I'm starting to be like, do you know what? I just do what I want to do. <laughs> That's my new thing now. I've gotten to an age where I say things like this, but mm-hmm. I just, I'm just going to pick the best of both worlds. And rather than being like, oh, it's so hard that I'm, that I'm torn between world, two worlds, I'm really trying to shift that narrative within me to be like, this is like the best experience ever. <laughs> like yeah. us to yeah. have the best of both worlds, right? And then not to feel weird about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Create yeah. your own. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I probably agree with that too. Well, speaking of um, Asian Australians, mm. what are some specific or maybe common issues that you see within the Asian Australian communities, their, their mental well-being, like the ones that are more common that you've encountered? Yeah, great question because we've definitely noticed some some big themes. We've um, Over the last few years, we've probably worked with like hundreds of Asian Australians now in our programs, which is so cool. And there's three, everyone's different, of course. Everyone is unique, but there are definitely some themes that come through. So I'd love to ask if they resonate with you too. Like the first one is um, stoicism. So like grit, perseverance, this mm. idea that um, I'll just keep my head down and just keep going. And I think that's what gets a lot of people into kind of like great levels in their career. But yeah. then sometimes something happens like the pandemic and then it's like, what have I been doing all of my life? Like what have I been pushing? And it, I, I guess it has a lot to do with sort of like, you know, your Confucianism but also mixed in with that immigrant mentality of like, it's okay, just do whatever I need to do to survive and I'll just come home and it's okay. Um, So that's huge. And then there is um, your internalised racism and experiences of not, and maybe not so much internalised racism amongst the adult cohort, but more like coming to terms with the fact that we've grown up not really liking being Asian and that grief around that and the disconnection and loss with our culture and then Mm -hmm. trying to piece that together and also forgive ourselves at the same time that we did what we had to do to survive. So kind of reclaiming that identity. Mm -hmm. And then um, intergenerational trauma is huge. Like the trauma that has been so prevalent across Japan Um, not across Japan, because of Japan, across Asia, because of World War II and Mm. occupation and colonisation. Like that was so recent. That was probably our grandparents' era too. And there were no resources like talking about trauma-informed mental health care back in the day. So people just kept going. Um, And now our generation, we're the ones with um, like, you know, we're not focused so much on survival but we're focused more on kind of self-actualization and all of that intergenerational trauma is emerging through us. Like we're feeling the effects because we've, we've got time to, we can 
we can kind of process it if that makes sense mm, yeah yeah I think, yeah i think intergenerational traumas plays a huge part in a lot of immigrant families not only immigrant families if we're speaking about asian as far as in australia we have refugees we have people that are forced out of their homeland and there's a lot mm. of things that need to unpack there definitely yeah. yeah it's really really prevalent and i think then that kind of feeds into like silence again if we talk about people don't want to talk about trauma which fair enough they don't want to tell their children but then the way that we see it is um, it felt like our caregivers were cold and were distant when really they were protecting us from the traumas that they've experienced and then that then feeds into us like being like oh that's how you deal with things you don't talk about it and you just keep going and that feeds into that kind of sense of stoicism oh, yeah yeah it just keeps going intergenerational. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love also it kind of when I'm thinking, hearing you say all this, Asami, I'm thinking about sort of the different ways in which we interpret the idea of love. Like I know that in the East, it seems like um, I've learned this from a friend recently. She was like, in, in the East, to a way to show your love is to like not burden other people with your, with your insecurities and your griefs. Whereas, like, I feel like in the West, I've learned that to love someone is to share everything with them. Mm. That's so true, right? There's yeah. this word in Japanese called mewaku, and essentially it's, like, so ingrained in Japanese culture, but mewaku is, like, you're bothering the people around you. So you live your whole life without bothering people. It's like, oh, that's, um, that's mewaku, that's a bother to others. Yeah. So then you're like, oh, I better not tell them. I better not tell them, you know, what happened because that would be a burden to them. And that's how you show your care. But then to us or to people who are raised in the West, then it's like, why don't you just tell me? It would be so yeah. much easier if you just told me. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, it is a very hard to, I guess, to open up because speaking of our parents' generation, they always um, – were only taught a certain way and they were never been exposed to a new way. Whereas our generation, we're seeing so much more compared to them. So, mm. um, so how do we kind of like normalize the conversations around mental health? Like how do we dismantle? Sometimes they will call it like a taboo or a stigma. And how do yeah. we encourage the ones that, you know, perhaps they don't want to get help? Yeah. I think um, we actually have a, a, a program or like a video series on our website and it's called Talking Mental Health with Your Family. Mm -hmm. And what we really talk about in that is like one, first and foremost, when it comes to talking about your mental health, always know that not everyone has a privilege to hear your story. No one, not everyone has a right. And there are always people who you know will tell you something like that you don't want to hear. Um, you know, like the person, you'll say, oh, I've been feeling really unmotivated. And then they'll say, oh, you're just lazy. Like we all know people like that. But yet for some reason, we often go back and keep telling that person things. And then we get upset when they don't take our story or when they don't listen to us. So I think one is like be really discerning with your audience when it comes to talking about your mental health. Like, you know, find the people that you know are going to kind of resonate with you and, and practice with them as 
you kind of develop your skills in talking about your mental health too. But then another really interesting thing to think about is I think many of us think that our parents' generation or the older generation never talk about their mental health. But if we kind of listen, or I should say, I think it's interesting to question that because the language that we're used to, things like regulation, anxiety, um, you know, intergenerational trauma, they're like really very Western concepts. And psychology is a Western practice, like a Eurocentric practice. Mm -hmm. And we're using these words with people who think about health. If you think about Ayurveda or traditional Chinese medicine, the whole concept of mental health is very different. Like, your brain is not separate to the rest of your body. So there's always links about different organs relate to different emotions. People are having conversations about the way that they're feeling and distress. It's just not in the language that we're taught in textbooks and what we commonly see as like psychological practice, if that makes sense. So then if you really listen to the cues of how your family talks about distress or stress, like things like, oh, I can't eat recently, I've lost my appetite or I'm always so tired or um, I always feel like my brain is foggy. Like that's people talking about distress and mental health but just not using words like depression and anxiety. So if we can kind of shift our language and match our language to our audience, then perhaps these mental health conversations become a little easier as well. It's always really interesting to question like, um, that there's this kind of narrow view that we have about mental health, but actually our the cultures the cultures that we come from think about health in a very very different concept to what we commonly know in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. Totally okay. agree. Yeah, well, fascinating. I'll, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah, there's so much to explore from there. Yeah. Um. So finally, what well, kind of uh, we'll be out of time very soon. Yeah. <laughs> Finally, um, where can we find your service online? Yeah, head to justshapesandsounds.com. So make sure you include the justshapesandsounds.com. Um, all our, our social tags are the same or social accounts. So at justshapesandsounds on Instagram is probably where we're most active. But that's where you can find our list of Asian Australian mental health practitioners too across Australia. Um, and have access to a lot of the free resources and you can sign up to hear about our membership program that's that's coming up soon in April as well. Fantastic. How exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great to to chat with you both. And Mm. Sami, before we leave, I I like to ask all our guests, um, if you could talk to your 12-year-old self, what's one thing you would say to her? Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's a great question. 12. I would say, like, um, what I know now is kind of what we spoke about, Jesse. Like, um, it's very confusing, but actually you have a lot of autonomy in everything that you do. Like, you, you think that you don't know what is happening and you think that you don't understand anything, but actually you have a lot of autonomy in just choosing the path (laughs) choosing what feels right Mm. and and that's the right answer like there actually is no written written way to exist in the world 
So just make it up and, and trust and know that that is the right answer and then you'll be fine. <laughs> That's wonderful. Great, That's really great advice. Yeah, great advice. Well, thank you again, Asami. Thank you both. Oh, that was really fun. And thanks for having me. No worries. Yeah, it was lovely to have you. That's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple. Remember to give us a five-star rating and we welcome listeners to send us your feedback on any topics you would like us to explore. See our updates on our socials and make sure that you share them with your friends to help us to extend the visibility of Asian bitches down under and continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So we'll speak to you next week. Stay safe, everyone.